Let's just close our eyes for a second. Prepare our hearts. We've just declared that we're going to fix our eyes upon God, upon Jesus. That by default means we have to take our eyes and our attention off that which is around us. firmly make that decision that Jesus you are king you are Lord you are in control you know the beginning to the end your word says that you know the flight of the eagle that Lord that even when a sparrow falls it does not escape your attention God, you are so intimately involved, not just observing, but involved, that Lord, that you hold this world and this universe in the palm of your hand, that your world, your word upholds it. And so Lord, we just place our attention upon that as even though it just seems so impossible that Lord Jesus, that you made that access and that, that closeness possible. Lord, I pray that more than anything this morning, that we would abide in you. Lord, we would place our attention upon you. And speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You know, as, uh, as Josh was leading that song, he wrote that song, and I was just receiving it as a word over the church as well, as declaring it that, uh, that we fix our eyes upon, upon him. So, uh, good song, good man. Justin, man, you're on point this morning. You're like rocking it. It's awesome. Lovely. Well, we are continuing our series in the Minor Prophets this morning by looking at uh, Joel. And so uh, while you turn to Joel uh, or poke your phone to get to Joel, then uh, let me give you time to do that by giving you a little bit of a framework as to where we're going this morning. Uh, Joel is one of the Minor Prophets or the Twelve as the, uh, as the historians used to call this group of Twelve uh, prophets in the, in the Old Testament, and the reason they're called minor is very simple. It's not because they're less significant or less important. It's because they literally are smaller books. And so Joel uh, is three chapters, and yet is filled with such incredible truth. And so we're going to pick it a little apart this morning uh, somewhat. One of, the, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is talking to people who don't know Jesus or on some kind of journey, uh, they're open to talking about things of spirit as well as other things that are in the world. And one of the things as a pastor is obviously I have a certain uh, leaning in my beliefs as whenever I'm talking to somebody. Uh, but one thing that I am very cognizant of is that I don't have to convince them uh, about this sense of, of something more. That every human has an understanding and a sense that is very deep within that there's something better. 
C.S. Lewis talks about it almost being like this inner voice, that there is a, there's a sense of the beyond, that, that what we see in this world is, is that we, we kind of have this feeling, it's like grabbing smoke sometimes, you can't grab hold of it, we just feel and sense that, that there is a beyond, that there's something better, and our culture, our world, our history has tried to convince us that that beyond that sense of something more can actually and please listen to this because I think this will resonate with you if you if you think it through and maybe journal it out a little bit is that our culture has tried to teach us that that something more can actually be found on earth that that sense of the beyond can be found in the material and that which we can touch or see or hear or or feel and we've been convinced of that by, by all sorts of different, whether it be modern media or the internet, or whether it be teaching or our schools, that there is something to be achieved, something to be gained, and that, that thing is, is tangible. You can find it on earth, that if you work hard enough, if you dedicate yourself uh, completely, if you stand up above the rest, if you do something different, then you're going to achieve this, this enlightenment, if you like. This, this sense of something more is going to become yours. The challenge with that is that it's not true. <laughs> and I, and I, can, I can biblically show you that to be the case, but I can also just experientially point to different things in the world to show that that actually that's not true. I think I paraphrased Jim Carrey, who's very famous and very rich, said something, and other people have said similar things, and I'm paraphrasing him. He said, you know, I wish everybody could get everything they ever wanted and all the money they ever wanted so they could find out that that's not the answer. Uh, And some of us might go, well, it's easy for him to say, I'd at least like to try. You know, that would be good. But I, I, I mean, I can point at different reasons, and we're going to get into a few of them this morning for sure, but more powerfully, all I need to do is to go quiet for a few seconds and let you look at your own heart. That we know that there's a beyond. We know, whether you're a Christian or whether you're just here, kind of poking around at faith, we love that you're here and we're glad you're here, and we welcome you. We want to be a church that is welcoming to everybody but I can stand on firm ground and know that we have a commonality. And the commonality is, is that we sense there's something more that cannot be achieved on anything that is found on earth. Which is why I love to preach, because I don't have to convince you, because God's already done that. <laughs> and if he, ha- if he hasn't, you're not cognizant of it today, he might do that tomorrow. That's his job, not my job. You only need to look at creation to see that there's something more Sarah and I had this, uh, we went around, what was it called, an ar- arbitorium? So, arboretum, it's a posh word for a garden, I think. Well, they know it's call it a garden, that's easy. It's easy to spell and easy to say. But anyway, we went through this on our holidays and there was this tree there and, and this tree is called the rainbow eucalyptus. And this tree, how many of you have seen a rainbow eucalyptus? Okay, it's this amazing tree, tree trunks like this big, there's lots of them, and I should have shown you a photo, but the actual side, the bark is peeling off, and as it peels off in very small slithers, it, it, I guess it must have some sort of chemical reaction at different stages, and it is multicolored, it's amazing. 
It's amazing. You look at this going, that is freaking brilliant. Just by accident, one day, the tree decided, (laughs) I'm going to be multicolored today. And the evolution said, we will allow that to happen, my friend. Start straining out those colors. Come on! Or is there a possibility that there's a designer that is just so creative and in love with his creation and the people that he placed in creation? He's going to go, I'm going to have some fun today. I'm going to make eucalyptus and I'm going to make it multicolored. I love that. And I think deep down inside, we know that to be true, that we need clinical answers for everything. We think that way, but the reality is, is our heart needs something more, the beyond. And our voice continually, this inner voice, this whisper constantly reinforces that there's something more. We know that to be true, regardless of how much fun the world is and how great the world is and the enjoyment we can have. When everything gets switched off and it's just you and your heart and your thoughts, we know that no matter what our possessions are and no matter how brilliant our family is and no matter how great the business might be or our bank account or our kids, whatever it might be, that when it all goes away and it's just you and your heart and you're on your front porch and your house and you're looking off into the distance, you know that there's still something more. There's still something more. And this, is, this awareness is heightened every morning for me. I have a morning routine that, uh, that the first thing I do is make a cup of coffee. And while I'm making a cup of coffee, because this particular thing we have, you have to press it down. And so what I, I put my hand on top of it. You're going to think I'm so sad. And I put my arm on top of my hand and it plunges slowly just by the weight of my hand. It's got to do it at a certain speed because otherwise the coffee's ruined. And while I'm doing it, I'm reading BBC News on my app. This is what I look like in the morning at about 5 a.m., right? I'm like this. Obviously, I'm checking out the football. Okay, real football, not not hand egg. Football. I'm checking that out. And then I flick to see what my favorite politicians have done overnight. (laughs) So entertaining that they think they're in control of the world. And God's just going, yeah, right. Rainbow eucalyptus, my friend. And I think of, I see wars, I see drugs, I see racism, I see sexism, I see abuse, I see pollution, I see accidents, I see fires, I see 17-year-old little girls dying at center of gravity. Little girls. If you don't think 17 is a little girl, wait, one day you will. Little girls dying through drugs. Maybe it wasn't drugs, I don't know. That's, that was the thought, it might be. See, all that highlights to me like a big fat highlighter pen. There has to be something more. And we are not even close to finding the answer. We're not even close to it. And so when we read these things, it heightens this awareness that there has to be a better way. You see, God created the world in such a way that, it, that it's aching. It says in Romans 8, we, we studied it a few weeks ago, that the world is aching and groaning for something, the beyond, the more. And, and as Christians, we would say that that reality is actually harkens back to the way God created the world, that he created it perfect, and now it's been broken. Sin has broken it. The world is broken and and BBC News, as I'm plunging my wonderful coffee, is highlighting it. My heart highlights it and center of gravity highlights it. There has to be something more. This is broken. I read this fantastic um, story 
on the BBC while I was plunging my coffee a couple of weeks ago. Um, and there's this lovely canal in Wiltshire. Uh, I have a picture of it. I think Dwayne is poised. This, uh, this is Wiltshire. This is, the, this is the canal. I think it's the, uh, uh, the Avon and something. That's what most canals are called in Britain. I don't know. There it is. And uh, isn't it picturesque? It's, it's, it's typical Britain. It's lovely. And so what happens is, is you go on a canal boat like that, or barge, or whatever you want to call it, and you go through locks. And we've got a lock in Kelowna, and you, you're meant to you open the lock, and the water lifts, and then you do that, and then you close the lock, and the water goes back down, and it, and it works beautifully. And these people who go on these boats, and I'd love to do it, and get into this habit, and there's lots and lots and lots of these locks. Except one day, one particular boater, no word of a lie, go on BBC as you're plunging coffee, you can read it. This boater, not that one, actually made a mistake. He forgot to close the lock. And this is the result. (laughs) He emptied the canal. Yes, that's just great. What a temptation every week. Should I empty the canal today? I could end up on BBC. I could start a blog. I could monetize this. He did that. See, what it's meant to look like, Dwayne, is like that. But actually, he ended up making it look like that. (laughs) I just laughed so hard. Thankfully, he just, and his, his answer was, I just forgot, I'm sorry. At least he was honest. At least he didn't say, well, you know, if my wife hadn't distracted me, or, you know, or the thing wasn't working properly, or the sun was in my eyes, or whatever it might be. No excuse, he just went, yeah, it was me, I'm sorry. And so the river authority, or whatever they're called in Wiltshire, they turned the tap, I guess, and filled the canal back up from the river, and it was all fine. They were pretty chill about it, which was great. The reality is, though, it wasn't created to be like that, but the result was, is a guy made a mistake, and that is the result. It wasn't the way it was designed. You cannot move very far in a barge when it looks like that. You can push and strain all you like, but what you're going to be thinking is, there has to be a better way. (laughs) I don't think it was created to be like this. Can somebody help me? Maybe I can get my family around and we'll try and push this thing called life down the canal. Maybe if I could get a better barge. Maybe if I got a better wife. Or maybe if I got a different husband. Maybe if I got a different job. Maybe if I could just move to a different place where the sun shines all the time. Maybe then I'll be able to push this thing through all the time knowing there has to be a better way. And so what happens in Genesis is God tells us out of chaos, he creates this better way, this beauty, this beautiful, incredible thing called creation. And then it gets broken. And it gets broken by Adam and Eve, a man and a woman making the decision to take God off his sovereign throne and replace it with their own good decisions, thinking that they can do better. And the result was is we live in a broken world and we can prove it just by watching Castanet on a morning and reading stories like Center of Gravity. Proof. Yeah, but if we change politics and social studies and we can do this and if only people would stop being sexist and if only people would stop being racist and and if we could just get rid of all religion because it's all religion's fault, completely ignoring all of the humanist-based, anti-religion, atheist-based movements that history shows us have killed far more people than any religion put together. But if we could just sort all that out, then we wouldn't be broken. We'd be back to the way that the canal should be and live in a perfect world while all the time knowing that that is not going to work. It's just pushing that barge, my friend. Pushing the barge with no water in the canal. 
So in Genesis, what we're seeing is this, is that God is showing Joel in Israel, his people, there's a better way, but something has happened. Something has moved through this country and radically devastated it. And we read it in Joel chapter 1 in verse 5 to 7 and then 2, 2 to 5. And so I've kind of put these two scriptures together for you to look at. It says this, this is God speaking to Israel. I want you to think about us being Israel. I want to imagine Joel is speaking to us, that God is speaking to us through Joel's words. It says this, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth. It has laid waste my vine. Vine is always a picture of God's people in the Old Testament. So this thing has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white, dead in other words. And he carries on. The land is like, look at this, the garden of Eden before them. And behind them a desperate wilderness and nothing escapes them. So you've got this beauty that God has created in front of this army, but behind them is devastation. So what God has created is right there, but it's being broken by this army sweeping through. That's what the words are. So the creation, the beauty, the perfection of God is being changed by this desperate, um, this army that is resulting in a desperate wilderness. And nothing escapes them. As with the rumbling chariots, they leap on top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame devouring the stubble. We know what that's like. You know there are fire tornadoes in California right now? They're actually fire tornadoes sucking up houses. And they're not even, I think, 5% contained, it said yesterday. So this is the image, complete devouring. And what is it that God is referring to? What has happened? What is it that God is saying? This is what our land is like, but also more than physically, this is spiritually what is happening in our nation. There is a devouring and a wasting and a death. And we can see it on Castanet. And we can feel it in our hearts. So what's happened? Joel chapter 1 verse 4 tells us what the cutting locust has left The swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. So this army that God is referring to, he's saying, is like locusts. Have you ever been in a plague? I was really trying hard to think if I've ever been in a plague. Obviously not. I mean, I've been fishing in the Yukon and been attacked by mosquitoes. Like you wear the net and, you know, it's just foul. And, you know, you take this thing off, you end up breathing them in, in your mouth, horrible. I remember going, uh, helping a beekeeper with his bees once. Bad mistake. Like, they're attacking your face. You can see the pincers. It's awful. Like, wow, why would anybody want to do that? I love the honey. That's great, but not the process. That's terrible. Sorry if that offends anybody. That was just me. But I've never been in a plague. And I started reading about locusts. This is what it could look like. Just imagine standing in the middle of that thing. Oh, it's just oh, terrible. Awful. But it doesn't, it gets worse, <laughs> obviously. These locusts dig holes and lay up to 100 eggs as soon as they're able. And there are holes everywhere. So they can lay up to 70,000 eggs every square meter. 70,000 eggs for miles. And then they hatch. And then they crawl, my friend. 
no wings, but they can crawl from up to four feet to 600 feet in a day, and they start munching as they go. And then, praise God, they, devour, they develop wings, <laughs> and then they take off. And they devour. And it's said that if you can hear a sound, the sound of a locust swarm is said to be horrifying. And they eat everything. They strip off bark. They leave a wasteland behind like a nuclear wasteland. And the land is devastated. You can't escape it. They get into your homes. They affect your family. They affect your livelihood. They affect everything. Is there a better image that God could use with Joel than the effect that sin has had on our land? That it gets in your homes. It starts off small. It starts off slow. And then it gains momentum. And as it goes, it has more and more of a devastating effect. Do we not see that in our schools? Do we not see that in our families, in our communities? That this thing has started slowly. It just seems to be speeding up, laying eggs as it goes. And I'm painting this terrible picture because what it's doing is this, is the more I can tell you how awful it is, is it highlights how incredible God's contrast is. How amazing the beauty should be is highlighted by the desperation of the wasteland that sin leaves behind. It starts at a small pace, and even in your own life, maybe something small, one decision that you made once, one thought developed into... A decision that developed into an action, that developed into a habit, and this habit now grips your life. So whether it's a land or whether it's a personal life, it affects us. Devastating effect, gradually destroying and decaying. And we see the symptoms. What we as a culture see as the problem is just a symptom. We see sexism and and abuse and racism and and politics and all these things that are, uh, can be, certainly politics can be, but those certainly other things are awful and terrible and evil. We see that as the problem, but those are just the symptoms of something far more problematic. And as a world, we have no answer. Well, we hope it gets better. We hope we can move this canal boat. But as Christians, we say we have an answer. Maybe you're feeling this morning that your life is like that locust. Just eating away. That something's eating away at your life. You're trying to save money, but things keep on breaking. You're trying to save your marriage, but the tension keeps on going up. There doesn't seem to be anything you can do. No new strategy you can try to actually stop this what feels like a plague coming through your life. There's no new strategy. And that, my friend, is good news because God isn't about new strategies. As a Bible-believing church, we are not here in order to provide another possibility or activity on your life in order to try and improve your life. God is not about enhancing or improving or tweaking or remodeling your life. That which you want, God doesn't just try and make better. What God does is I'm going to absolutely radically change it. Which is why he allows the locusts to come. Oftentimes he'll allow us to get to our absolute desperate low so that we could turn, which is what he did with Israel in Joel, so we can turn and recognize him, him as Lord It's the prodigal son, where the son is in the pig pen, having left his father, bearing in mind ham, pigs is the worst thing for for a young Jew to be involved in. He's living out this desperation, this wasteland. There has to be something better comes to his mind. And the Bible says he comes to his senses. 
See, God will use our circumstances to remind us that that pushing the canal barge is not working. There isn't a new strategy. He is the strategy. He is the way. He wants to transform and completely change your life. He's committed to it. He's committed to it. Which is why, for those of you who are on a spiritual journey, you've not submitted to Jesus, you're still thinking this through, let me tell you, He will continue to chase you down. He will chase and pursue and chase. And if you heard the message last week, you'll know that. I want that one. I'll take her. But have you seen the mess? Yeah. I love her, is what we read in Hosea. I love her. He loves us. He, he says that he's faithful to complete the work that he started in us. He's, he's committed. So I've been a little bit horrified last uh, few months and years about the cost in Kelowna, bear with me because this should be in the news, of uh, haircuts. Um, and, you know, I'm very grateful that, uh, that, that we... That, that the, 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 we can have haircuts, don't get me wrong, I, I like short hair, that's, that's important, but I don't like spending 40 bucks. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, spend $40, you should go to my barber. Yeah, but he uses, you know, I only pay $5, and we can see why. So I'm not, I'm not so just bear with me, but I've got two boys as well. And so I said, right, well, okay. Luke decided actually one day that he was going to get some clippers and have, we love you Rachel, but have Rachel cut his hair, his girlfriend. It's brilliant. So I came through the family room only to see Rachel going. (laughs) And like Luke's going, what? What's it right here? And I looked and bless her. We love you Rachel. But I don't know what happened, but grade one, I guess, had gone up the side. And it was just this track here. You're committed then, aren't you? You're committed to follow through. So I said, would you like me to carry on? I mean, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so, I, so we, we got it back. And I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can do this. Jack, sit. Cut Jack's hair. This is awesome. So this week, I cut my own hair. Yes. I know, hey? I paid myself $50, awesome. Tipped myself as well, $60. And I'm doing this, and I'm cutting my hair with, with a little, little mirror like this, like going up and trying to fade it in and thinking, I'm saving money, this is good. How miserly am I? You know, thinking, man, if I make a mistake, what's the worst that could happen? I just got to shave the whole thing off and my church will laugh at me because they usually laugh at me anyway. So I'm committed, committed. I'm committed to saving a hundred bucks every with the four, three of us. It's great. See, God is hundred percent committed to complete transformation. He's not just interested in a little trim. He wants a complete transformation. He is going to change us. He is going to transform you. But this is good news. This is good news because it means that we go from wasteland to the way that He created us to be. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, which is an outstanding book if you've not read it. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, then I'll quote him. Paraphrasing, he says, many people come to God because they realize their house is broken and they've tried other things and now they need God to fix it. Quote, at first you can understand what he is doing. 
He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's erecting a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Wow! I'll have that transformation. Amen? God is committed to transformation. Our vision as a church is to see lives transformed by Jesus Christ in the Okanagan Valley. Transformed lives. What do transformed lives look like? Families that are thriving. Marriages that are thriving. Kids that are thriving. Businesses that are thriving. Relationships that are thriving. That comes from being transformed. In other words, all those things. It's the the palace, the family palace. The palace of marriage. Doesn't that sound good? That's what God wants to create. That's why Christianity is so beautiful. God has so much more and love and change for you than you have for yourself. Which is why he allows the locust, sometimes the circumstances, to wake you up. So, there's bad news, really bad news. Good news, really good news. I say this quite often. The bad news is, you're a sinner. You've done stuff wrong. You've left the lock open. The water has gone. There's been consequences. You're trying to fix it, but it's not working. That's the bad news. The really bad news is there's nothing you can do about it. You're good, but not good enough. You think you're good. You think that a new strategy, a new job, a new circumstance is going to change it. Maybe I'm going to go to this counselor or that, and you find out that that is not enough to bring it back to the way that God actually created us. That thing that is a heartbeat inside of us that we long for is only going to be brought about by a miracle, and that miracle is not found on this earth. So that's the bad news and really bad news. The good news is, is that God in his love and mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we're incapable of living and then die the death that every one of us deserves by leaving all the locks open in our lives. The sin that has brought consequences that we deserve punishment for, justice for. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. It's not very loving that God would send his son to die and take the punishment instead of you? That's the good news. The good news is, is there's transformation available. The good news is, is that he gave us his life, that he gave us this gift of righteousness. Not only did he die for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserve, not only that, but then he imputed righteousness, gave us righteousness. That's the really good news. The really good news is a gift. There's no amount of pushing or positioning or trying that is going to get you this good news. The good news is a gift to us that we just need to accept. So God presents us with a choice. He says in Joel, you can see this, that there's this, this is the one way you can go, or you can choose this way. You can try and deal with the locusts yourself, or you can choose this better way. Let's put aside our efforts and trying to be bettering ourselves, and let's focus on what God says, because God is the designer. God is the one that has said, this is the better way. This is what is the beyond. I will give you that through Jesus Christ. But what we choose to do is take control. Try harder. Do better. I've been uh, regularly biking and 
I really enjoy biking down Lakeshore. It's one of my favorite things to do and uh, go for an hour and a half and just up and down Lakeshore and up the hill. It's brilliant. But the, the Lakeshore is amazing. You can bike along it. And inevitably what happens is you are going to, you go all the way to the end of Lakeshore and then there's that kind of circle that you can just come around and come all the way back. You go past the signs that people have put up. Have you seen those signs? If you go past this, you're on camera. You go past this sign, plagues and death will await. You know, really what they're just doing is trying to create for themselves a private road. It's not. You can go all the way to the end. You come back. So as you're coming back, I dread seeing somebody coming this way. Because the first thing I think of is they're going to catch me up. So I'm like, start pedaling harder because I don't want this 15-year-old kid or 93-year-old gentleman catching me. And as I'm pedaling harder, and inevitably they do catch me, usually on a hill, and they love it. I know they do because it happens every now and again to me. As they pass you, they'll go, hello. (laughs) You know, I'm like, oh, this is killing me. It takes the enjoyment out of it. Not for the person passing, that's fun. The person being passed, you kind of (laughs) go, you know, it's not fun. What am I competing against? Where's the freedom in that? Where's the freedom in constantly trying to compare myself to somebody else, trying to better myself? Isn't it? far better for me to actually enjoy and be content with what God has given me? Isn't it better just to enjoy the ride because I'm out in the beautiful air and sun and enjoy the ride for what it is rather than constantly comparing myself that seems to be better than me? See, it says this in Joel chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, Glenn, get off your throne and allow the one who actually deserves to be sat on the throne of your life to rule. Glenn, stop comparing yourself with other people thinking that you have the ability to better yourself. You don't. Be content with that I got off my throne, Glenn, Jesus says, and came and humbled myself to the point of death on the cross so that you could be sat at the table with your name on it already. And there's nothing that you can do to gain that. It's already set. You're already in. You're already accepted. You're already mine. You already have an eternity. You already are changed. So what is it you're doing in your life to try and get that which you already have? Let's just calm down and rest. And enjoy the pleasure of God. The Bible says he sings over you. See, you can start living the beyond now when you live through that lens. That I'm not going to compete. I'm not going to prove myself. I'm not going to try and get a bigger, better, shinier, more lasered, nicer smelling church with more people. I don't have to try and get it up there and out there so people can see. I don't need to try and get a better car because there's always somebody with a better car (laughs) than me. There's always somebody passing me on the hill. How better is it to live life comfortable on your own bike? Comfortable in what God has already given. But he says, return to me with all your heart. See, repentance is a heart thing. Not that you feel bad and you want to change, you want the feelings to go away, but you actually recognize that you have taken God off the throne of your life and said, I'm a better God. And you repent for that. You come to him. 
We're going to sing at the end, Reckless Love, that God has this immense love for you, and yet we somehow replace him constantly, thinking that that which we have put on the throne is more important and better. Whereas placing him on the throne brings freedom. Jesus showed the the ultimate example of love on the cross. And then look at this, and I'm going to finish with this. Joel 2, verse 19. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be, everyone say it, satisfied. Oh, to live life satisfied. Doesn't matter what you have, what you don't have, what God takes, what God gives. Doesn't matter if you get the job, the promotion, or not. Doesn't matter if you get the girl, the guy, or not. Doesn't matter if you get on that course, that program, that degree, the particular university, the whatever, or not, that you can be satisfied and content. You don't have to pedal harder, buy a different bike, get a different hill, buy a better car, get a better degree, invest more wisely, don't do this, do this, don't go there, don't go this, don't do this, that you actually have the freedom because you will be satisfied with that which God has died in order to give you. That you could wake up in the morning and go, Lord, regardless of what life brings me today, I already have everything that eternity has to offer. I'm already living in the beyond. Do you have that? Or are you straining to control, competing, knowing there's a better way because you can see that the world sucks in some ways. Do you have that satisfi- uh, sa- being satisfied, the satisfaction, that contentment? So what about that whisper? I started by saying there's a voice, that inner voice. I wonder what he's saying to you right now. I wonder if he's saying there's a better way and his name is Jesus. Let's just stop with trying to push our own barges let's surrender and say jesus we want to put you on the throne today let's pray lord jesus we're going to sing now we're going to declare the magnificence of your love but lord we sit here recognizing that we do a really poor job of being kings and queens of our own lives God, we, we sense that there's a beyond, there's something better. Father, forgive us for enthroning and chasing after things that ultimately are empty. Even if they're fun in the short term, that Lord, that ache still is there. Forgive us, Lord. We, I pray, Father, that as we sing this song, that we as a church... As those who know you, Lord, would repent. True repentance. We would fix, like we've already sang, Lord, we'd fix our eyes upon you and your incredible love. Jesus, thank you that you willingly humbled yourself and went to the cross to take my sin my shame, my punishment, and gave me life, all satisfying, all consuming, life to the full.
Lord, I pray as a church, just like Joel prophesies, that God, that your spirit would be poured out and that we as your people would take this truth into a broken, needy world that sometimes feels like a wasteland. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, that you trust us. You fill us. Thank you, God, you're in control. We need that. So grateful, Lord. So glad. Praise you, Jesus. You keep your eyes closed. I want to encourage you. This is a point of rejoicing. This is why it's called good news. This is good news. That our children and grandchildren and friends and family can grow up satisfied and content regardless of what's going on around them. That life in Jesus can be theirs. And that we can sing and we can sing loud because of the truth that there is a place at the table with our name on it. Maybe you're not sure about that. Maybe you've never come to the point where you've surrendered and submitted to Jesus and said, I I need you. And you've confessed. And you've cried out. We can do that right when we're singing. But we'd love for you to tell us that. You can fill out a connection card and you can put on there that you want to talk to somebody. You can give it in. And I know you go, wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> but just talking and having somebody pray with you can send you on a trajectory into the beyond today. So friends, let's sing loud. Let's sing with rejoicing. Let's sing with passion. Let's enjoy his presence together.